You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. All right. Uh, if you got a Bible, I encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably uh, a black one in front of you. Uh, the passage is in your bulletin as well as on the screen. So here's how I want to kind of start this one. So we're, I'm not going to do the reading of the word today, so know that. Because sometimes if we get out of order or something happens, we oh, Lyle, forgot something. No, we're, we're just kind of jumping in today because uh, we're going to be working through the text. And so we're just going to jump in. So, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll start our, 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 our talk, so to speak, off with um, my wife and I. We've been married for 24 years. Uh, we dated for seven uh, years before that. Now, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't know if that's the, the most wise dating counsel I would give. So the reason why it kind of worked for us is about three and a half of those years, we were mainly off, not really dating, kind of off and on. And I was living in Campbellsville, and she lived in Cambridge, Ohio, which is about a five, six-hour trek. And that was before cell phones, texting, instant messaging. We didn't, I didn't have a computer for crying out loud. You know what I'm saying? So like you had to dial one and then the aerial code, literally like the so and, and if, you know, pay that wonderful $300 phone bill a little bit later. Um, but I remember, and she would probably remember this way better than I do, but I remember one time in our kind of dating relationship kind of early on, I remember literally sitting down having this conversation. It's pretty humbling for me to say this because it just kind of shows a lot of um, what God had to do in my life. Um, yeah, it's a journey of humility and humbling me. And I thought I was really something else when I was 18, 19, and 20. And so uh, I, I remember sitting down with her. And in, in essence, this is kind of what I was wanting. I kind of liked the relationship. I liked having a sort of like a girlfriend, you know, someone sort of in my corner, you know, like that likes me and thinks I'm really awesome and likes kind of like talking to me. Like it was really nice to have that. But at the same time, I wanted to keep my options open, right? There were other ladies, so to speak, that, you know, I wanted to go and talk to and hang out with. And I literally, uh, I'm pretty sure about this you guys Kathy I I remember having this conversation with her and in essence saying hey you know I like us but you know I would still like to kind of have an open relationship there are some other girls and I think I named them off like specific names that I'm kind of wanting to talk to and go out with but I like me and you are what do you think about that um well that didn't go real well all right (laughs) So it's probably a good thing that I was five hours away shortly. I had to leave. So that didn't go real well at all. So, um, and that, that's definitely not how I'd encourage anyone uh, to do that. And so, uh, and so obviously, I mean, you would describe that as a very um, superficial, half-hearted, um, unwise way of trying to commit to a relationship, you know? Where, man, I really like having sort of a girlfriend, but I also want to keep my options open. And that doesn't work, not only does it not work in relationships horizontally, it it doesn't work um, with our relationship with Jesus either. And I think if we're um, we're willing to kind of be honest and and really be open-handed, 
That's kind of what we have with him a lot. There's a lot of benefits that Jesus brings to us. And maybe we don't say this outright, but I think there are ways that our posture is like, but hey, I want to kind of keep things as is over here and in this area. I think Matthew chapter 11 and 12, and we'll see this as we uh, kind of get more into this book, I, I think he's really, uh, Jesus is trying to confront us and have us really think about what is our response to Jesus? Is it, is it more characterized by what I was trying to do with Kathy? Have a girlfriend like that idea, but then keep options open? Or am I all the way in? Is it more of a half-hearted response? Or is it a wholehearted response to him? I think at the end here, chapter 12, there's three um, kind of different scenes that at first reading, they seem so uh, unrelated. You know, it seems like, what in the world is going on here? And you'll see this and feel this as we work through this text. But we've got to remember, Matthew's the one that put these scenes together. And so then, therefore, there's got to be something that he's trying to do with putting these three scenes that seem so unrelated. And I think what's going on here is that Matthew's wanting to warn us and Jesus is wanting to warn us about the dangers of this superficial, half-hearted response to him. So look with me. Look at what's going on here. Uh, starting in verse 38, you, you have the religious leaders that kind of come to him and they ask for a sign. And, and, and basically what they're wanting is they just want proof. Like, hey, you know, you say you're this person, the Messiah, then prove it. Show me like a sign here. And, and this is all a smokescreen. We know that. We, we saw in the first part of chapter 12, like they've already made up their mind who Jesus is and it isn't what they expected or thought he would be. And so they're already trying to figure out a way to kill him. So they're not, they're not coming with this posture of like, I'm struggling, help me believe. No, they're coming with the posture of like, I'm trying to catch you in something because I want to kill you. That's the sign here. It's just a big smokescreen. And so Jesus gets it, he sees it, and at first he says, nah, nah, I'm not going to give you a sign, and then he kind of changes his mind. I love that in this text. Nah, I'm not going to give you a sign. Oh, matter of fact, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, is what he says there. Very, very obscure little prophet in the Old Testament. Interesting little book. I mean, it's not how you would expect it to be, but it's an interesting book. So now I'm going to give you one sign. Here's the sign. Uh, just as the prophet Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so the Son of Man is going to be basically kind of in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So in essence, he's saying this, here's your sign, you're going to kill me, and I'm going to let you. He's predicting his own death here. So here's your sign, you're going to kill me, I'm going to let you because my love for you is really deep. And then he goes into uh, verse 41 where he begins to compare this generation to do two different groups of people. Look what he says here in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and it will condemn it. Why? Why is that, Jesus? Because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah's here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Why is that, Jesus? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater Solomon is here. 
So the people of Nineveh, it's a Gentile nation, that's the people that Jonah went to, to preach to. And the, the queen of the south is, is a story in 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, reference as queen of Sheba, most likely from Ethiopia, who went hundreds and hundreds of miles to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. So, so what is it about this, these two groups of people? What is, what's the similarity? What's the, the, what, what, you know, why does he use these two group of, groups of people and say, hey, they're going to rise up and condemn you at judgment? Well, here's the, the, the commonality of these two groups of people. They had very little knowledge, and they responded wholeheartedly. They had very little. Jonah's sermon was like nine words. <laughs> and it wasn't like couched in nice language. It was basically repent, you're going to burn because of your sin. And it was not kind. He was a racist, hated the, hated the people of Nineveh. I mean, you can just imagine kind of his posture and how he walked through the streets of Nineveh proclaiming this nine-word message. And if you don't believe that, read the rest of the book of Jonah. He sits and pouts because they repented. Nine words, and they repented and followed God. Here's, here's the queen of Sheba, another Gentile who's coming hundreds of miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon. They had very little knowledge and they responded wholeheartedly. And Jesus is going, look guys, I am the sign of God. You have way more than the people of Nineveh had and way more than the queen of south is. I'm standing right before you and I have shown you that I am from God, but you refuse to listen. You have more, and you're still resisting. And then, it seems like Jesus jumps into this story that feels sort of unrelated, and it's not. And, and I think part of what Jesus is doing here is because sometimes we can look at the story about the religious leaders, and we can excuse ourselves and say, ah, that's not me. I'm not trying to, I wouldn't try to kill Jesus. I'm not rejecting him outrightly like that, like, like, I'm here, Lyle. <laughs> I'm saying, like, that's, that's kind of like a step showing I'm, I'm for Jesus. And I think part of what's happening here in this next little story is he's actually kind of exposing all of our hearts here. So maybe you're not in the camp with the religious leaders, but it's just as dangerous when we give a superficial, half-hearted response to him. Look what he says here, starting in verse 43. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person... It's just strange, right? It's like you just talked about the son of Jonah and Nineveh and Queen of Sheba and all this, and now we're going into spirits? Like, that's a, like, it's a massive, like, jump. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? So when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it, it, it roams through the waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. And then it says this, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it found the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Key words there. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be also with this evil generation. That's why I know they're connected. So what in the world is Jesus saying here? I mean, it's a really strange text. And please hear me, let's not read into this too much. 
it's kind of an essence. He's sort of like a parable. He's trying to make a point here. He's not trying to give us a full understanding of what happens to a spirit when they're exercised out of someone. So don't read into too much of this because he's trying to make a point. And I think the point is simply this. It's really dangerous to give a half-hearted response to me. He is warning us against these superficial, half-hearted response to Jesus. And he says this in different ways and different places throughout the gospel. A little more clear, right? This is a little fuzzy, but here are some areas that are more clear about the dangers of a half-hearted response to them. We see it in Matthew chapter 8, 19 through 22. We read this uh, a, a few weeks ago. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He goes on, another disciple came and said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. That seems like a, a decent request, but what does Jesus say? No, no, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Luke chapter 9, 61 and 62, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. That seems like a reasonable request, but what does Jesus say? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus is confronting us and saying, look, guys, a half-hearted response doesn't work. You've got to be all in. Someone make the argument that what's going on in this little, little parable about the demons and where they go it's sort of a pictorial commentary of verse 30 in chapter 12 where Jesus basically says, look, there's no neutral place with me. You're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground here. I'm a polarizing figure. You're all in or you're no way in. You're, you're, you're all the way for me or you're against me. There's no neutrality here. That's why one commentator says it like this. Neutrality toward Jesus is an empty house unmoved belief in Jesus is merely swept but unoccupied home mere interest in Jesus with no commitment to him is a house in danger of haunting so another way of like understanding this that that might be a little bit more kind of like uh, something we would experience or understand so if anyone's ever suffered uh, or dealt with addictions whether it's a substance addiction, whether it's an addiction to pornography or uh, eating disorder, whatever it may be, most people that are in recovery would say this to you. You can't just say no. No is not enough. I mean, it's, it's a great first step. But you also need to fill yourself with some yeses. There has to be other things that are in place in order to help you Say no. That's in essence what Jesus is saying here. The key word is empty, unoccupied. One writer says it like this, the house is clean and empty. The person is religious and hollow. The community is outwardly moral and inwardly purposeless. Empty, clean, and all fixed up. Has suburban life ever been better described? So look, Jesus, with this little story here, is helping us see 
how dangerous it is to give this half-hearted, superficial response to him. Similar to what I did with Kathy. You know, it's like, hey, I like this, like what we got going on. It's great to have a girlfriend, but I want to keep my options open. That doesn't work here, and it doesn't work with Jesus. Like, it's either a wholeheartedness in, or it's, it's nothing. I wish I'd thought about this earlier in the week. I would have brought a, a picture in. I just thought about this morning. I don't know if you guys remember the little t-shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. Anybody remember that? I mean, there's some truth in that. There is. But it's a half-truth, isn't it? And I think that's what Jesus is calling out here. Jesus can't just be your homeboy. He's also your Lord. I mean, yeah, I, I love the Jesus that, that comforts us. Like, I lean into that really strong. I love the part in chapter 12 where he doesn't bruise a broken reed or put out a smoldering wick. Man, that's... That's the, kind of the priestly work of Jesus where he comes alongside and comforts us. He's sort of like, quote-unquote, our homeboy. He's beside us. And I, yes, I'm all for that, but he's also my prophet who comes and confronts me. He confronts me in my sin. And at times it can be really hurtful and wounding and may even feel unkind. But he's also not just my prophet, he's my king. He commands my allegiance and has every right to command my full, wholehearted allegiance to him. That's the whole of Christ. He's not just your priest. He's your priest, he's your prophet, and he is your king. And if all of us are sort of being honest with our own spiritual lives, we love it. When we can kind of pick and choose. I like him being my homeboy. I like it when he comforts me. And Jesus is warning us that that's a really dangerous way to be in relationship with me. And in fact, it doesn't work. Then he goes into this little final scene that seems unrelated. It's like, all right, what? We go from like, you know, the men of Nineveh, you know, and Queen of the South to the spirit thing going on. And now we talk about his family. It's like, what in the world? But notice where his family is and notice what their posture is. Because they're connected. They're not unrelated. Look what he says here in verse 46. And while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were what? Standing outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And so where is his sort of immediate family? This is kind of Lord, sort of Jesus' biological family. Where are they? Well, they're outside. And outside is, is kind of a, uh, an idea of indecision. They're not inside sitting and listening to what Jesus is saying. No, they're standing on the outside it's indecisiveness there and what's their posture they're standing mentioned it two times and standing is sort of this posture of half-heartedness it's it's a reserve it's a position where it's easy to walk away 
I mean, I don't know if you've ever walked in situations where people are sitting in chairs and you're not sure what's kind of going on here. I wish I could think of one in my own personal life, but I can't think of anything right now, but I think you know what I'm talking about. You walk in some kind of situation, maybe somebody's giving a speech or a talk and, and you're not sure what's going on, like not sure what this is about, you know, and not sure if I'm for this. So what, what is your posture? You don't run and jump on the front row. Well, not very many people jump on the front row here at all. We got two. Scott, LaVonda, love you guys. That is always empty. I don't know why, but it, it's normally not filled. But usually whenever you're kind of getting someplace that's a little, uh, you're just not sure. You're not jumping in and sitting somewhere amongst them. Where are you? You're in the back. And you're standing. You're not in. It's a half-hearted commitment to it at best it's easy to walk away you don't have to stand up and excuse me excuse me excuse me now you just kind of slip out right now jesus mother and brothers are the empty clean all fixed up house but they are empty because they are outside of his circle of seated disciples and even think they can just tell jesus what to do Jesus is not their Lord, but their charge. So the common thread with all these little scenes is Jesus warning us against a superficial, half-hearted commitment and response to him. I grew up in a, in a church... Um, the Southern Baptist Church, and I, I thank God for um, having a mom and dad that made it a priority that we were in church every Sunday, not just every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Monday night, every Thursday night. I mean, whenever the doors was open and something was happening, here comes the jury family. And part of that is because my dad was on staff usually at these churches. He was, you know, back in that day, he would kind of have this combo position of a minister of music and youth. And so, I mean, that's just, that was my world. There was a, kind of a period of time where some things happened or where we stepped out of that, but it was pretty much the, the common theme in my world. And I, and I am, and I look back on that, and I really thank God for that. Um, but, I, but I do remember um, uh, sort of um, the, the theme of the church, you know, especially the services. I would hear this often of like being sold out, you know, being all in. Um, not being lukewarm, you know, being hot or cold, you know, just being a, you know, passionate, you know, fired up. I mean, you just, you would just hear that every week, week in and week out. And, and every service was kind of like centered around this. You're just not fired up enough. You're not sold out enough. And so what you need to do is you need to come forward and rededicate, recommit, re 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 whatever it is that they want to do and man the invitation would last really long just as i am had like seven stanzas for crying out loud and they would do all seven and if nothing happened it's like i feel the spirit saying let's go again i'm as a young kid i'm going i don't feel that spirit i feel hunger like let's get this thing going wrap it up we got to go places right and even now um and I'll listen to preachers or if I'll go to a conference and I, and I hear this same language of like, you got to be sold out. You got to be radical. You got to be all in. 
And if you're not, then here's what you need to do. And I just, I just find myself like cringing when I hear that. And, 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 a, and a few reasons that I think that's the case is one is that usually what this meant um, is that you just had to have this sort of emotional high all the time. That if your spiritual life isn't just this amazing high every day, 24 hours a day, then there's something wrong with you. Because it's not God's fault. And so you need to recommit. You need to rededicate. You need to come forward and confess whatever sin it is because spiritual life is supposed to be here and that's where it's supposed to be lived, but there was no space for struggle. There's no space for, like, dryness. There was no space for dark seasons. There was no space for doubt. Like, this is it. And if you're not there, something's wrong with you. You're not 100% committed. You're not all in. And the other thing that I struggle with it is that I just, I never found it helpful. Like, what does that look like? How do I, how do I live like this? How, how? How does that happen on a Monday, on a Tuesday? Like, what, what in the world does this look like? And I never found this kind of language of being sold out, all in, very helpful. And then I come to Matthew chapter 12. And I'm trying to take all of this wrestling that I'm feeling in me and put it before Matthew chapter 12 because it, it seems like, and it's not just seems like, I believe this is what Jesus is saying, like, you got to be all in. There's not this half-hearted response to me. It's either you love me or you don't love your family. Like, like there's no, like, we, we could try to slice that up and try to make ourselves feel really good about it. But in essence, Jesus is going, look, if your love for me does not surpass your love for your family, then you're not worthy of me. Then, then, then move on. Because I'm not someone you can remain neutral to, kind of be down in the middle. No, you are either 100% all in or nothing. And like, I'm going, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to go with this. I'm not even sure what this necessarily looks like. But here's what I am saying. I want this. I want to be wholeheartedly in 100% I want you as my priest who comes alongside and comforts us in seasons when we're dry and struggling and dealing with sin but I also want you to be my prophet I want you to come and confront me when I've got sin in my life and I'm blinded to it I want you to get at my face I also want you to be my king Lord Jesus I want you to command me and have authority over my life this is what I want And my prayer is that this is what you want. And I think what Jesus is saying here is when that want is absent, that's when it's really dangerous. That's when it becomes kind of like this half-hearted, superficial, hey, man, it's so good to kind of have you sort of as insurance protection when I die, but just kind of leave me alone. So what does this look like, Wow, what, what is a continual, 
wholehearted response to Jesus, receiving the whole of him, not just a part of him. What does that look like? Well, I think he shares this with us in these last two verses in 49 through 50, and I think it may not be all of it. It's not an exhausting list, but I do think it's an exhaustive, maybe exhausting, an exhaustive list. But I do think, let's just kind of keep within the text and say, like, what, what does this look like in my life? What does this look like tomorrow when I, when I get up? Look what he says here, starting in verse 49. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples. What's he doing there? What do we do every service at the end with our benediction? We do this kind of weird thing that makes most people uncomfortable, right? It's called a benediction. It's called a blessing. He's blessing these people. He's sticking his hands out over this interesting crew of followers of Jesus Christ, and he's blessing them. What are they doing right now? What are they doing? We don't know. <laughs> Matthew doesn't tell us. I mean, we can speculate. They're sitting. So if mom and dad, or mom, not dad, mom is outside standing, most likely the rest of the crew is sitting. And in Mark's gospel, we hear that they're sitting and listening. And Jesus sticks out his hand to bless. I mean, look what else he says here. We'll come back to the sitting and listening in just a minute. He says, Here's my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, my brother and sister and mother. And so a, a wholehearted response based on what we see here in this verse, verse 50, 50, is doing the will of God. That's a wholehearted response there. And so, so before we kind of spin out here and think, oh, is this a works-based salvation? No, it's not. Our salvation is accomplished only in and through the blood of Jesus Christ. But what is it? What is this doing the will of God? Well, we go to the Gospel of John and we understand that the work of God or another way of saying what John's saying, the will of God is to do what? Is to believe in the one he has sent. Well, who's the one that he has sent? It is Jesus. That's the will of God is to believe in the one that God has sent to believe in Jesus. Well, now, what does that belief look like? Is it a one-time belief or is it a continual belief? And I would say, yes, there's a one-time belief, but there's always a continual belief. And I would say from this text here, we can see what this will of God is that helps us understand what a wholehearted response is. And that is this. It is sitting and listening. That's it. What does a wholehearted response look like, Lyle? It is sitting and listening. That first and foremost is for us to be in the very presence of Jesus, sitting and listening. Sitting meaning to be still, to be settled, to be calm. To be at rest. Is that you? Is that what you're experiencing in your own interior world right now? Maybe the, the work that God has for us and continues to have for us is learning what it really looks like to rest in Him and not just say those words, but actually live into those words. Like, what does it really look for you 
to live into the reality that you are loved. That I don't have to earn love. That I don't have to go seek love out. That I am loved. Why? How do I know that? Because if you're in Christ, then guess what? Jesus is fully loved and my life now is hidden in Christ. So then therefore I am loved. I mean, can we just stop for a second and think about like if I lived out of a posture of being loved, how different my work would be, how different my marriage would be, how different my parenting would be, how different my presence would be. You're enough. Why? Not because you're finding something in and of yourself that this culture wants you to do and say, man, you gotta, you got to convince yourself through some kind of language, dialogue, whatever it is that you're enough. That will never work. It will always leave you empty. It will always leave you wanting. It may bring a temporary fix, but it's not a long-term fix. The reason why you're enough is because Jesus is enough. And if my life is hidden in Christ, then guess what? I'm enough. I'm a somebody. Because my life is now hidden in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is a somebody, so I don't have to go around trying to figure out and make sure you guys recognize that I'm a somebody. That's sitting. That's resting. That's being settled. Psalm 131 I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. You get that picture? Is that a description of you right now? I mean, the important part is a weaned child. Amen, moms, right? Not a weaned child. It ain't settled, right? It isn't like rooting around, right? But when it's weaned, it's just still and knows it's home. And we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, and most of us in this room will have a few days off. And I, and I really sincerely ask you this question, both men and women, can you really put your work down? For 24 hours, can you just put it down, not, not think about it? not answer your phone, not respond to a text, not check your email. Can you do that? And I'm not trying to say this in some condemning way. I'm just, I'm trying to extend the kind of like what Jesus would do here and just invite you to be curious on why. Why? What is it that work is doing for you that is designed and supposed to be met in Jesus? Can you put your phone down? I mean, literally. Can you turn your phone off for 24 hours? I mean, that's crazy for me to say that. 20 years ago, that would not have been a problem. Amen? <laughs> right? But it's a huge deal now. It's a huge deal for me. Like, what, what hit am I getting when I pick up that phone? Right? What, what, what's going on? Sitting. Being still. 
calming my soul. Learning what it looks like to rest in Jesus. That, that's wholehearted response, guys. So not only is it sitting, but it's, it's listening. It's both, not either or. And listening, I, I equate with obeying. I don't, I don't know what happened here. I don't know where we got to a place where obedience became a four-letter word to where obedience becomes like legalism. They're almost synonymous for some people. And I'm going, that's just, that's the craziest thing in the world, guys. Look, obedience to Jesus is life. I'll say this again, guys, look. Obedience to Jesus is not death. It's not ball and chain. It's not legalism. Obedience to Jesus is life. If you want life, then obey Jesus as your king. If you want to live life in the fullest, then obedience to Jesus is the pathway. If you want a misery, if you want to live with regret and sorrow, then here's the way you do that. Obey yourself. That's the other option. And maybe it's working for you right now. Maybe it is. Maybe life's like, dude, we're, I'm killing it. All six cylinders, boom, awesome. Well, all right, man, keep coming back and life will find a way to show you that it doesn't work. Because that's not what you're created to do to submit to yourself. You're, con- you're created to submit in relationship with Jesus. And so for a way for us to kind of think about this whole listening idea, um, this may sound kind of weird, but we'll just go with it. Just imagine yourself um, walking with Jesus, and he's right side by side with you, and you guys are going into a building, and you guys step into an elevator. And imagine that all the floors of this building are the layers of your life. And we all got multiple ones. So one floor may be your, your work. One floor may be your, your relationships including spouse, friendships, all that. One floor could be uh, your money. One floor could be your thought life. One floor could be what you do in your own, you know, free time. Um, I mean, label them all, all right? Whatever it is. And just for a minute, what floors do you purposefully leave Jesus out of? Where, what floor do you kind of say, hey, I don't want you roaming here. I, I got this floor. But hey, you, you can go to one. You can go to ten. Stay away from four. Where have we learned that the best way to live is for me to manage this floor of my life and leave him out of it. How's that worked? And part of a wholehearted response to him is to stand on the elevator with him and the floors of your life on display and say, okay, pick one. I'm done. I'm done trying to manage all these on my own. I'm done managing number three on my own. Let's go. Because I want your voice to be the dominant voice in all the floors of my life. That's listening. That's a wholehearted response. And look, I may be projecting here, but 
My, my guess is that none of us in this room are saying that all floors of my life, Jesus has the dominant voice. I'm making the assumption that there are a handful of floors we keep Jesus out of. And what I think Jesus is inviting us to do, because this is where life is found, a wholehearted response is to have him on this elevator next to you and saying, hey, what floor? What are you afraid of? What are you fearful of? So maybe a better question is not, am I sold out? Am I on fire? Maybe a better question, am I sitting? Am I taking space to be calming my soul, resting in who Jesus says that I am? Am I listening? Is his voice the voice in all the floors of my life? And maybe this week, the simplest step is to choose one of those floors. It's okay. I want to listen. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.